alive to declare your promise, my soul now to stand. And you stood before my failure, carried the cross for my shame. My sin weighed upon your shoulders, my soul now to stand. Yes? Okay. 
Guess it depends on where you're coming from. Well, uh, welcome everybody to Friends Church. If you're visiting us for the first time, we're so glad to have you here. Um, if you haven't been here in a while, welcome back. It's good to see you. We've got a few, just a couple of uh, quick announcements today. After the 11 o'clock service, uh, we have a class. Uh, this one is for the baby dedication and um, for the baptism, which is going to actually happen next week. But there's a class today if you want to come and learn a little bit more. But even if you're not getting um, either baptized or dedicating uh, your family to the Lord, um, you're welcome to come to the class. And you're also welcome to get baptized next week or have your baby dedicated, even if you don't come to the class. So if you missed the class this week or you know somebody who wanted to get it done, not a big deal. But just let us know in the office so that we can uh, prepare for uh, next week, figure out how many towels we're going to need, uh, that kind of thing. And we also have uh, um, uh, gifts that we give uh, for those families. Uh, all well, what else we got? Oh, yes, we have, the, like I said, we have the celebration night next Sunday at 5 o'clock, potluck like the congregational meeting was last week. So bring a dish to share, bring a dessert, whatever. But that starts at 5 o'clock. Uh, it'll take about an hour. We'll have some fellowship and some um, worship, and then we'll do uh, uh, the dedication and the baptism, and then we'll have a little bit more worship afterwards, right? We'll just, we'll just keep worshiping throughout the night. It'll be awesome. Hey, listen, you got a little communication card inside of your uh, bulletin. Most of you know what this is. Please use that to communicate. Everybody can fill one of these out. I know we're always saying first-time guests, second-time guests. We really need you to fill this out, and that's true. That's awesome. Do that. But even if you're not, even if you're not, we got people who fill that thing every week, fill them out. So they'll, they'll put in a prayer request and they want to make sure somebody gets them. I guarantee you, if you put in a prayer request on that communication card, it's going to come to the staff and we're going to sit down. We're going to go through these things and we're going to pray over each and every one of them. So please use that communication card, not only to update your address and you know your, your vital statistics, but also any prayer requests or needs or just praises that you want to put or comments or whatever. Use that card. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and dismiss the kids to Kids Church, but before they leave, I want to pray for them. So, Heavenly Father, thank you for these kids. Thank you for these children. Thank you for these gifts. We want to do our best, Lord, to make sure that this world's a much better place than the way we leave it. And the one way we know to do that is by making disciples out of our children. So we send them off to Kids Church. Please bless those teachers. Give them wisdom, discernment, and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, kids, you can go.
church. Welcome to Friends. Um, you know, we've been spending the last few weeks looking at uh, a few of the ministries that we're involved with here at Friends Church, from CR to the Weaving Project over in Burma, um, and then the work that the Eubanks are doing over in Mosul. And it's been an awesome and encouraging time just to see the impact the gospel is making all over the world. Um, it's crazy when you start to think about it, the uniqueness of these projects. I mean, we have, you know, something that you would, you would almost expect to see in a church, you know, a structure that works around going through the truth of the gospel and really looking and hopefully opening up the doors to our heart through CR and letting the truth of the gospel help re- just renew us and transform us and heal us and 
it's incredible to hear the testimonies that God is doing there, but it's not limited to that structure. I mean, you look at the weaving project over in Burma, and it's a weaving project, but it's being used for God's glory. And it's just, it's just such a cool thing to see that God is not bound to our ideas of structure. He's not bound to a certain set of things like it needs to be done this way. I mean, He can use our unique gifts and our passions for His glory to really bring, bring about His redemptive plan in history. Um, I had a chance to talk to Karen Eubanks after the service on Sunday last week. Me and Lauren had spent time with them probably four or five years ago. We went down to missions convention before I was even a pastor down in Wasilla Church on the Rock, and we stayed with the Eubanks down there. And so we were catching up for a second, and she said, you know, how's it going? And uh, we were able to tell her, you know, not only am I a pastor of friends now, but we have five kids, and just this huge dynamic shift. And she's like, whoa, like, that's crazy. And it was really, it took me by surprise, because she looked at me, and she said, you know what, you're living my dream. And I was like, really? Like, she's like, yeah, I always dreamed since I was a, a teenager of, getting a house and raising foster kids, just getting a bunch of kids. And she's like, I'm just jealous of what God is doing in your life. And that coming from the woman who is going on the front lines in Syria, and I'm looking at her being like, man, like the same thing that calls us to stay home and give our house to children in our community is the same thing that calls us from our home to go to the children all the way across the earth. It's, the gospel is so dynamic and it's so huge. Um, that it's just such a cool thing to see the impact it's been doing uh, in our community and abroad for the last few weeks. Um, But today we're going to be transitioning back to the letters that Paul wrote to the new church in Thessalonica. Um, And I'm excited about this. This break I haven't preached in four weeks and that's been the longest in like a year and a half. So I've been jazzing to preach again and I'm excited about what God uh, spoke to me this week in His Word before we begin, let's pray. And uh, Father, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the truth of who you are. And Lord, honestly, this is a, this is a week that has hit many with much mourning and sadness and frustration. And, and Lord, I, I thank you for your word in Psalms 34 that says that you are with those who are brokenhearted. Lord, and that you strengthen those who are crushed in spirit. And God, I thank you for that the, the power of that truth becomes alive to us when we open up your word. That we're met with living words. That the God of eternity can speak into our hearts and, and begin to heal the areas that have been broken. And Lord, I pray that you're with all of the families around this community this week that have lost loved ones. God, I pray that you would be their comfort and their peace. And Lord, as a body, that we would do our part in just coming around them and speaking life into those situations. Father, I thank you for this community. I thank you for the work you're doing here. And Lord, I pray that we would be intentional in the way that we are sharing each other's burdens and walking with each other. And so God, as we get into your word today, I'm sure some of us need to be renewed I'm sure some of us need to be strengthened and for our, our focus to be realigned with your truth. So I pray that you would do that. 
And for others that might have never heard about the truth of the gospel, Lord, I pray that their hearts would be open to hear. But in all things, Lord, that you be glorified in this place as we spend this time in your word and as people uh, give their treasures as well, Lord, be glorified in this place as head of this church. In Jesus' name, amen. So, the first week of October, we began looking at Paul's response to the believers on the topic of death and the second coming. And it feels like a very, um, I mean, pressing time to be on these topics with everything that's been going on in this valley recently. And today we're going to be looking at how God has called us to live in preparation for that time in light of the gospel. In the last part of chapter 4, if you'll try to remember with me, if we go back a few weeks, Paul makes it clear uh, to his Christian readers that we are not ones who come to the end of life and have no hope. Even as we mourn for those we have lost, um, and we mourn rightly for those who have lost, um, Paul says that death is unable to destroy the union that exists between Christ and those who are in Christ. He talks about this unbreakable unity which the people of Christ enjoy with Him and with each other, in which death is utterly unable to destroy. Those who have died with Christ, the Word says, have just fallen asleep. And there is no possibility that the Christians who have passed will be separated either from Christ or from Christians living today. Because... When the Lord returns in the end, the dead will rise and we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Jesus in the air and we will be with the Lord forever. What an incredibly encouraging truth. And this was especially encouraging to the new believers in Thessalonica to hear because there were false teachers coming in and out of the city proclaiming all sorts of things at that time. That the second coming had already happened and that those who have died have, have been lost forever. And the people were hearing much confusion. Confusion and, and talk. Not that end time so-called prophets are anything new for us today. Every couple of years a new prediction about the end of the world occurs. Confidently wielding such claims as the Bible guarantees it. Um, we talked about Harold Camping at the beginning of October, who spent $5 million on billboards in the year 2011 on a campaign where he was sure that the, the, the end of the world would happen May 2011 and all, on all of his billboards and all of his vehicles. And they made bumper stickers and it says, the end of the world is happening May 2011. The Bible guarantees it. Uh, I don't want to... It didn't happen. That's just a secret. Um, But people make hundreds of thousands of dollars by selling hundreds of thousands of books confirming details of of why this would be so. Uh, And it's been quite lucrative, actually, for some. Harold Camping, in particular, you know, leading up to his event of May 2011, some people got clever and started an after-the-rapture pet care um, 
that was opened by a bunch of atheists. And you could pay $120 and they would have a database full of non-believers who would not be raptured, who would promise to take care of your pets when you were gone. Um, this is real. And when the date approached closer, the price went up to 135 because, well, it was imminent and, you know, it just, yeah. So one of the sites I looked at this month, because they're actually still around, ended up in the news in 2011, right before camping's predicted date. And the reporter asked if they were worried about a failed prediction. And they said they weren't because they knew there would just be another one in a couple years and they'd be ready for it. And besides, there was no refunds. Um, I was reading through the frequently asked questions on one of the sites and they said, what happens if a person dies before the rapture? Will you still take care of their pets? And they said, absolutely not. (laughs) This is only for rapture. But as I said before, end time predictions such as camping make it easy for people who are unsure of their Christian convictions to become unsettled. And... It makes it very easy for those who love to ridicule the Bible itself to find fresh ammunition to do so. It is a dangerous thing. I am very hesitant in my life, and this is just me, about playing the God card. I see a lot of people play the God card a lot. You know, God said this, or God told me this. I'm not saying that God doesn't speak through people. But even for myself, it's just that's something I guard. It's just like, God, is this me or is this you? Because if it's not you and I'm saying it's you, that's not good. (laughs) That should fear, that should scare us. And if we're making billboards that say the Bible guarantees it and God's word doesn't, man, that that is not a good thing. And among all the noise... All the talk and confusion in our culture, the Bible is very clear about certain things concerning the end. And it's important for us to know that. Because where are we to stand? What should our thoughts be when it comes to this reality that Christ is returning? Well, today we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1-11. And although we are in a new chapter, Paul is still mid-response on this topic. It is clear... In 1 Thessalonians 4, 12 through 18, that Christ's return will be loud and dramatic. Remember, Paul says that the Lord would be coming down from heaven with a loud command. The voice of the archangel, the trumpet call. This gives us a clear picture of being loud and dramatic. You're not going to need to call your mother and ask her if Jesus is back. You're not going to be able to, or not going to need to go on to um, the news and see if they see pictures of him in the clouds. We're going to know. The whole earth will know. Um, so, with that being said, Paul goes on further in this chapter. And if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, let's read First Thessalonians 5, 1-11 through 11 together. It's going to be on the screen as well. This is the word of the Lord. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you 
are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. So by the end of chapter 4, Paul urges the church to focus their attention on our eternal hope. Namely, that those who have believed and those who have died believing will be with the Lord forever. And you can hear him respond to another question here in light of that response, almost. It's as if the church was saying, yes, we know that we're going to be with the Lord forever, but when will forever start? When is this going to happen? And this question is hardly surprising in light of their family dying, the persecution they were facing, all the talk that was going on. It's like, oh my gosh, Paul. Okay, we're going to be with him, but when? Because this is hard right now. When is this going to happen? And this was a question that arose frequently throughout the word. Um, All the way back into the 6th century, the prophet Daniel He gets a vision from heaven about the revelation of the end times. It's a powerful picture. And these are his words to the angel. He says, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? In other words, when will this start, angel? And I'm sure he was as frustrated as I am when I read it. The angel replies, it's going to happen in years, a year, and half a year. It's like, thank you for that. When is that supposed to be? And the angel says, no one, no one can know this time. But Peter wrote in his first letter that this was one of the questions that consumed the minds of the Old Testament prophets in 1 Peter 1.10. On more than one occasion, the disciples inquired about the time of the end. And even the Pharisees asked Jesus when this would happen in Luke 17.20. So what is Paul's response? Well, just like the chapters... Uh, before, Paul stresses again to the church that the solution to their concern does not lie in knowing a date. To begin with, no one knew and no one could ever know. As we looked at a few weeks ago, Jesus had said that he did not even know it himself and only the Father knew. And later he told the apostles in Acts 1-7, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set for his own authority. In Luke 12, 40, Jesus said, The Son of Man will come at an hour that you do not expect Him. And the Thessalonians knew this because Paul had already told them that. That's why Paul writes, We don't need to write you concerning this. You have no need to have anything written to you. Why? It would be pointless to do so, for you know very well that the day will come unexpectedly. And then he says two things. He says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and destruction will come like labor pains. Now, both of these illustrations, they speak about Christ's coming being sudden, but each one highlights something specific. Now, one of the characteristics of a burglar coming into your house 
is that they come unexpectedly, right? It's not like you would come home to an empty house and go, of course all of my stuff is gone. I had this on my calendar, October 28th, all of my stuff will be gone. No, it's unexpected. It's sudden. Paul says this is how Jesus will return. Maybe one of your cars is getting stolen right now. Um, That would be unexpected. Um, (laughs) And sudden. Paul says that this is how Jesus will return. Like a car being stolen from our parking lot. Um, And then in verse 3 he says, While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains comes on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Well... I'm going to be honest with you. I've never been pregnant because that's impossible. But my mom was a midwife for a number of years, I think 18 years. And she delivered hundreds of babies in our town. It's like every time I go into the grocery store, oh, there's like 150 people that know my mother because she delivered them from the womb. Um, I grew up at the uh, the breakfast table eating cereal and, and looking at watching her get ready for all of her midwife tests, seeing pictures that no five-year-old would want to see. Um, (laughs) And I have sat on the outside of a door more than a few births in my life because sometimes she had to take me with her because I was the youngest. Um, And I've learned a few things. One of them being that if everything goes well, you have about nine months of preparation, but when the labor happens, it happens. There's no putting it off and rescheduling and pausing until the crib is built. The baby doesn't care if you have gotten a full night of sleep or if the midwife is on duty. If you're going down the Johansson, when it's time, it's time. And what Paul is saying here is that Christ's return will be sudden and unexpected like a thief in the night. And it will be sudden and unavoidable like labor at the end of a pregnancy. You might... Know that you're going to expect it for nine months. But when it comes to that time, it's unavoidable. It's there. The first case, there will be no no warning. And the second, there will be no escape. But then he says something super important for us to understand. Because even though he says clearly that this day will be loud, dramatic in verse 4. And then here, sudden, unexpected, unavoidable. He says that we don't need to be surprised by it. Verse 4 and 5. But you are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. What is he doing here? Well, he's doing what Paul does so brilliantly. He has such a pastoral heart. He's speaking about their identity. He's reminding them of who they are. You are not of the darkness. You are a child of day, a child of light. And if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul said that this small church, church's example of faith had spread across the whole earth because they had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They turned from their idols to God, to serve the true and living God, to serve and worship the Lord. And this is what marked them out. This is where their fame came from. 
that they turn from the gods of Mount Olympus to the God who is alive and well on the throne of heaven. And this is actually what marks out a true Christian. This is what marks us out from the world. We were created to worship and we bow before something. We all do. Last year, I had someone approach me between services and asked to talk to me in my office. So we sat down and in so many words, um, I realized that he was not a fan of me at all. Um, He said, I think it's pathetic and weak that you would try to convince people that they need to bow to a creator. Like people aren't strong enough to make it on their own. Um, we actually had a good conversation though. And eventually I was, I, I asked them, I said, can you honestly tell me, can you honestly tell me that you don't rely on something every day to try to find peace, to try to find your worth, to try to find your freedom, to try to find joy, your identity. Can you truly say that nothing controls you? And to my amazement, actually, He thought about it, and his whole demeanor changed, and he said, I can't. I was like, wow, that didn't go as I thought it would. (laughs) And um, in his case, he said, I've struggled with alcoholism for years, and he knew it controlled him. And what he didn't like is coming to a church where I said that morning, you are not strong enough to make it on your own. You need a Savior. And here's a man who's been trying to be his own and realizing he can never be. But he didn't want to know that. He didn't want somebody to tell him what he had been struggling to know his whole life. That you're not strong enough. See, what happens to us when we come to Christ is that we give up the substitute gods that can truly do nothing to sustain us or save us. And we turn to the true and living God. And when we encounter Him, there is no reason for us And in fact, it makes no sense for us to go back to those gods that are false. The people living in Thessalonica had the gods of Mount Olympus just right down the road that they could go to and they could bow to. Today, we have the gods of materialism, sexual fulfillment, vanity, drugs, alcohol, social media. The list goes on and on and on. And all of them are are calling out to us, worship me, worship me. I will satisfy your soul. Worship me. And people bow before them in submission. And they are left empty. And Paul says, when we meet Jesus, our lives are radically changed, not because we begin to worship for the first time, but because we begin to worship that which we were created to worship. And in doing so, we find our identity. Because we've all been created worship we've all been created to bow and it's only when we put our face down to the feet of Jesus that he lifts us up and he says now live you live because of me and your identity now is who I am I mean it's incredible it's incredible Paul is saying here, I know that you're worried about times and dates, but if you know who you are, then the things that are largely unsettling to you will be taken care of. 
You are not in darkness. You are children of light, children of the day. This is language that runs throughout all of Paul's epistles. Famously, uh, Ephesians 5.8, where Paul says, For at one time you were darkness. Not you were of, but you literally, the identi- your whole identity was darkness. But then he says, But now you are light in the Lord. So therefore, walk as children of light. We've talked about this over and over the last couple of years, and we're going to continue to do so, but notice the progression here. You are light, so walk as a child of light. Much of the things that unsettle us, unsettle us come from an identity crisis. What we do emerges from who we are. When we come to Christ, we are given a new identity and told, this is who you are, so live as you are. This is who you are, so live as you are. See, legalism says, this is who you want to be, so try really hard to be it. But Jesus says, no, 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 you are a child of light. So walk in the freedom of of being able to be a child of light. Walk it out. Don't live messing around in the darkness. Don't live under the threat of destruction. Don't live on the strength of your own performance. Live on the basis of union with me, with Jesus. You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. I was talking to my dad between services and... I love my father because whatever I'm preaching about, he reads that text in every translation the Bible has to offer. And in between services, he's like, did you read the Amplified? I was like, no, I forgot that one, Dad. He's like, you should have read the Amplified. Because the Amplified says, in quotations, which is awesome, it says, you are not in darkness. And then it says in brackets, given up to the power of darkness. See, Jesus doesn't only define us by light, but he gives us the power of the Spirit. Because darkness truly does have a hold. It has a power over us. And when we come to Christ, he says, no, no, not only are you not in darkness, but the power that was over you is gone. You are a child of light. says you know Jesus said he was coming back there needs this doesn't need to take you by surprise he said it I've told it to you this doesn't need to surprise you and surprise is a key word here in Paul's argument there are two reasons why people are taken by surprise when when a burglar breaks in the first is that he comes unexpectedly yes during the night but the second is that the household is asleep See, we can't really do much about the first. Jesus is a sneaky Jesus. He's going to come back when he comes back. But we can do absolutely something about the second. That's why Paul says in verse 6, So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Without a doubt, Paul is stressing what Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 42. He said, stay awake, for you do not know 
on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. Now, obviously, God isn't talking about us all living in it with insomnia. Right? He's not talking about physically not closing your eyes. He's talking about being awake spiritually. He's talking about the fact that believers have no place. We don't have time nor a place to sleep spiritually. We don't belong to the darkness. We don't belong to the light. How many people in this world profess Christ with their mouth, but their actions show that they would rather sneak into corners that are darker so they can do whatever they want? As opposed to living out in the open. Paul says, no, no, no. Don't profess that you're a child of light and then go meddle in the dark. In Ephesians 5.14, he says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. You know that face your kid has if you have children, or I know that you've had this face yourself when you get caught red-handed doing something? I remember the feeling of being a child when my parents would catch me doing whatever, whether it was mostly had to do with food, because I love food. It's my love language. Um, But your whole body just comes numb, and your face just does this weird contortion. Good thing camera phones weren't around when I was a child. Um, Paul says there is no reason for us to be surprised. There's no reason for you to be caught hiding cookies under the kitchen table. There's no reason. Wake up. You know, the Bible is divided. It divides history into two ages. From the Old Testament perspective, these two ages are called the present age, which was evil, and the age to come, which would be the time that the Messiah would come onto the earth. And this was spoken continuously throughout Scripture. The present age and the age to come. And moreover, the two ages were often portrayed in terms of night and day. The present age was like a long, dark night. When the Messiah came, the sun would rise and the day would break and the world would be flooded with light. Isaiah speaks about this in Isaiah 9-2 when he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then God speaking through The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, he says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I will do and I will not forsake them. And then Malachi speaks of the son of righteousness, S-U-N. The Son of Righteousness in Malachi 4 that shall rise with healing in its wings. And this Son shall bring freedom and cause all the people of the earth to leap for joy. And then Zechariah prophesying right before John is born, he said in Luke 1, The sunrise shall visit us from on high 
to give light to those who sit in darkness in the way of the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And then John, in John 1, he says, In Him is life, and this life is the light of men, and this light shines into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And the light came. There was a shaking in the ages. From the time of the fall, the present age had a hold over humanity. But a great light had dawned. He took on flesh. He lowered himself even to the point of a servant. And you know what he said when he came? He looked at those who were once lost in darkness and he said, You, you are the light of the world. Sitting on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole earth house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How is this possible for people who are in the present age to become the light of the world? Well, Paul, he tells us in Colossians 1, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. This light not only transforms us, but it becomes our very identity, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who what? who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. We don't belong in the darkness, church. We don't belong. We should not be asleep. The very fact that we can be called children of light is testimony to the, to the breath that God took upon Himself to save us. That Christ lowered himself to the place of a servant and even lowered to the, to the dirt of the earth so that we could be saved from the present age and live in his light. And not only live in his light, but become the very light he came to give. We don't belong in the darkness. The believers asked Paul about the time of Christ's return so that they could be ready for him. And Paul tells them that there are some things we can know about the day for sure. Yes, the day day will be loud. It will be dramatic. It will be sudden. It will be unexpected. And it will be unavoidable. But whether you are ready has nothing to do with the date or time. But rather it has everything to do with who you are. Which age do you belong to? Which age do you belong to? Do you belong to the night? Or do you belong to the day? Are you asleep? Or has Christ awakened you? Are the curtains still drawn? Or has the light of Jesus shone in upon us? Are there places in your life that you are hiding away from God? 
struggle with that question every single day. The very gift that we can be given the light of God, that He can reveal in us the things that we need to lay at His feet, that is grace. Because there was a darkness over this world that had a power, and it has been broken. You know, almost all of us have these moments in our life where we just want to spread our wings and fly. We just want to experience the world, become a rebel for a weekend. What I've noticed, the pattern um, the last four years is I see people continuously doing things because they want to gain their own freedom and have their own independence and just be their own person. And they want to just, you know, do something that's new. And what much of us don't realize is that we're not doing anything new if we're just meddling around in the darkness of this world. That's been happening since the fall. Oh, what? You want to go drink on the weekends with your friends? Yeah, that's... It's not new. You want to go try to do... I mean, we want these new experiences. The only thing new that has come since the time of the fall is when Jesus ushered in a new age. And he said, you you don't have to be stuck to that anymore. Like everybody thinks that this is all we have. No, you could be ushered into something amazingly new that will actually satisfy you, sustain you, draw you out of your weaknesses, heal your burdens. You can live in the light. Look at verse 8. Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, it's easy to forget that we are at war. We live in an overlap of the ages, and this is a real battle. There's this paradox as being a pastor where I'll sermon prep all week long and then I'll preach on Sunday and then I'll go home and I'm like, oh, I just want to rest because trying to draw out truths of God's word and have the Holy Spirit speak through me, it wears me out physically, (laughs) Um, which is fine. I, I happily do it. But the place that I always go to rest is not the place that I should go. It's like I just want to sit on the couch and watch Netflix. And God is saying, don't you realize that you're going to take a day off and the enemy is going to still be on full attack. How easy it is for us to forget. And if you don't think there's a huge bullseye on the pastor's back after he's preached two services, it's like, no, no, no. The place that you need to come, Eric, is back to the Word. I've been studying all week long. Not to study. To find your rest. Um, That's something that I continually wrestle with. And by God's grace, He continues to lead me back to His Word. But the enemy doesn't take a day off. The enemy would love nothing more than for the church to be found sleeping when Christ returns for His bride. So Paul says, be on guard. Several times in his letters, Paul likens Christians to soldiers 
and refers to our necessary armor and equipment. In Romans uh, 13, 12, he says that the night is gone and the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That sounds like an awesome armor. Um, And here he says we must put on faith and love as a breastplate to guard our hearts and hope of salvation as a helmet to keep our heads. These three spiritual virtues are our best defense. And these three things are the things that he edifies the church in doing at the beginning of the letter. At the beginning of Thessalonians, the, the way that he begins this entire letter is he says to him, We give thanks always for all of you, constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying, be on guard. What should we do? Do the things you're doing. Don't stop doing them. The Christian life is not passive where we just receive Christ and we go, well, I'm just going to sit here and wait for Him to come back. It's like, no, no, no. You have been given an identity. Walk it out. Why? Because there is a war going on for your soul. And if you think think that you can passively sit there and the enemy will just let you go by being like, I'm too tired to deal with that guy. Let's just let him off for the week. No. Maybe for a time. Paul says, guard your heart. Remember what's important. Make the foundation of your life the faith that you have found in Jesus. Love each other intentionally. Keep your head with the hope of salvation. It is our faith in Jesus that gives rise to a labor of selfless love for one another. And that love lived out is rooted not only in what Christ has done at the cross, but what He will accomplish for His church in His second coming. We pour out our lives because we know that eternity is our home. And so it is our enduring hope in Christ's return and the promise of eternity that leads us to continually working out our faith and to live steadfast in the face of persecution and trials that no matter what the enemy brings our way, we will hold fast because we're alive and we're awake. We're not sleeping. Stay alert, he says. Guard your heart. Keep your head and hold on to hope. Some of the Thessalonians were afraid of the day of the Lord because to them it spelled out judgment. Maybe some of us are feeling the same way this morning. How can we confidently say that His return will bring salvation? I mean, I just talked about a verse, verse 3, where Paul says, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. That sounds terrifying. It's just like, man, I can't wait for the second coming of Jesus. Sudden destruction will fall upon you like labor pains. It's like, that sounds like an oxymoron. How am I supposed to be excited about this? Well, we have to remember not to just isolate verses. What the enemy loves to do is he loves to terrify us with the wrath of God and blind us to the grace of God. This is where Paul goes next in verse 9. 
For God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in Him. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness of men. We know this for sure. The Bible is clear about this, that His wrath is real. How do we know that it's real? Because He crushed His Son. If you don't think the wrath of God is real, you don't understand what happened at that cross. When Jesus in the garden said, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, what cup is he talking about? The prophet Isaiah talks about the cup, the full cup of wrath. The wrath of God poured fully from a cup. And Jesus knew that when he went to that cross, he wasn't just bearing our sin. He was bearing the punishment for our sin fully. Fully. But God has made provision for us in that his son gave himself. By nature, the word says, we are objects of wrath. That doesn't sound cuddly at all. That's what the world tells us. The word tells us that you are an object of wrath. But by grace, we are redeemed. Remember verse 10 of chapter 1. We talked about this a couple months ago. This is what Paul is talking about. He says, They tell how you turn from God, or turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. This Jesus rescues us. Why? Because there is a wrath that is coming. What does He do? He rescues us. Our behavior, how we behave, is based upon who we are. Right? We said that earlier. This is who you are, so live as you are. This is who you are, so live it. But who we are is solely based upon what God has done for us. What has God done for us? He has exchanged wrath for grace. Okay? And what does that mean? That means we can be ushered into the kingdom of light. And now Jesus defines me. Well, not because Jesus defines me. I'm going to live out the fact that Jesus defines me. That's the progression. If you turn it the other way around, you get the thinking that someone might have or walk through when they're coming into the reality of God. I now consider what God has done for us, so I trust what God has done for me. And I understand who I am in Christ, and because I know who I am in Christ, I understand how it is I'm supposed to live. This is the vision of Friends Church. Know God. Know each other. Make Him known. That we would know God. Not only who He is, but who He declares us to be. That we would know each other. That we would be able to see God moving and living and, and revealing characters of His Spirit to one another. And that we would speak that into one another. And we would take that truth and we would live it out. Know God. Know each other and make Him known. 
The wonder of God's mercy will never fully come to us until we understand the significance of His wrath. I don't say that lightly. I'm not trying to scare any of us. But until I realize that I deserve the death that Jesus died upon the cross, I will never... I mean, it will, it will mean very little to me that Jesus died in the first place. Why does it matter? How can it matter? Unless we realize that we were saved from something that is coming. Judgment. Unstoppable. Like labor pains. But when I think that God, His Son not sparing, sent Him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden, gladly bearing, He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul. Then sings my soul that I knew that I had a price that needed to be paid. I needed to be forgiven. And Jesus did it. Then sings my soul, how great thou art. Verse 10, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And this reality is not passive. When we come to this Verse, it, it doesn't say, for God has not destined us from wrath, but Jesus saved everybody and we're all scot-free. He says, so obtain it. Receive it. He's not going to force himself onto you. It is a gift. And it was very costly. What cost God very much is free for us. Receive it. Our life is found in His death. That is the significance of the gospel. Josh, you can come forward. If you guys want to start coming and getting communion too, I'm going to end with this. Our life is found in Christ's death. What other record of a man's existence spends the largest amount of time dealing with the man's death? When you look at biographies... I mean, some will spend a sentence or two, maybe a page, talking about the man's death. All the majority of the material is on the front end, where they grew up, how they lived, and so on. But when you look at the gospel, what do you find? That it moves inevitably and quickly to the preoccupation with the death of Jesus. Why? Because it is the death of Jesus that is the life of the believer. It is the death of Jesus that is the life of the believer. It is the death of Jesus that allows us to be called children of light. And Paul says, receive it. Receive this gift. He says, I know you want to know about the times and dates. We don't need to write to you about that though. This is what you need to do. He says, you need to know who you are. Because spiritually speaking, Christ will come in the day and the night. 
He's coming in both. Well, what do you mean? Well, it depends on who you are. In the case of the unbeliever, he will come in the night because they belong to the night and live in the darkness. They are still a child of the present age. But for his people, for those who have put their trust in his unfailing love, he will come in the day and he will lead us to life everlasting. assured of his second coming because we know the truth of his first. The night before his death, Jesus sitting in an upper room with his 12 disciples, he, they were taking the Passover. This was something that the believers did every year to remember the redemption that God brought his people out of Egypt the sign was is that they took the blood of a lamb and they smeared it over the doorposts in Egypt and the angel of death passed by the houses that were covered in the blood and God said you remember every single year the fact that I saved you with a sacrificial lamb by taking this feast you break bread together you drink the wine together And so it just so happened, coincidentally, that the night before Jesus died is the Passover feast. And they're taking it in the upper room. And as they're going through one part of it, Jesus, he takes the bread like they have done for thousands of years. And he flips the script. And he says, you know what this is? This is my body. that will be broken tomorrow for you. You have been looking back to a Passover lamb for thousands of years, waiting for there to be a final sacrifice. And it is here. So I'm going to be broken, I'm going to be bruised, and I'm going to be beaten so that you can be made whole. Remember what I'm about to do and remember it forever because I am bringing in a new age. The sun has dawned and this present darkness will not control this earth any longer. So he said, take this bread and remember it. And he took the cup and lifting it, he says, this old covenant that we've been under, this year after year after year, having to come back to the temple and make sacrifice after sacrifice, that's done. Because in this blood, I have established a new covenant. Because of my death, because of the wrath of God poured out fully on me, you can be free from sin forever. Once and for all, you no longer are bound to your sin or the pain of your past, that you no longer are separated from the throne 
of God, you can walk into his presence with boldness because of this blood. I will remember your sins no more. it's about church Jesus came to usher in a new age the dawn has come the sun has come and Paul says let us not forget what has happened the date doesn't matter who you are matters because God gave everything so that you can even be declaring yourself to be a child of light but it's truth So live as a child of light. Don't meddle in the darkness. If you're here today and you have never confessed Christ as your king, if you have never repented of your sin, you want to be ushered into a new kingdom. Man, it doesn't take a script. It doesn't take you saying the right words. It says in the word, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Christ is Lord and you will be saved. It takes just saying, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need a Savior. And when you come, I don't want to stand in your judgment. I want to stand in your grace. And I want to be ushered into your presence forever. If you're feeling that tugging on your soul today, I would urge you to take the first step and just... Confess your sin to God. I don't know what it is. You know what it is. And just start trusting. Believe that He is Lord. And if you do that for the first time today, um, as we worship, I would just love for you to come up and take communion because this is what He's done. He said, do this and remember that you can be saved. Have a blessed week, church. If you wouldn't mind getting your kids, I went super late, but that's just my style. Love you guys. Have a blessed week. Oh
My sin way 